You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 342, following the news that a restaurant in Venice charged four tourists over £1,000 for lunch, we discuss our worst dining out experiences. Terence asked Juliet if she's ever considered a career as a darts girl. And we review the most hypnotic and awkward show on British television. It's all coming up after Target's Bill and Love is Contagious.
now working for a non-profit organisation in Detroit, uh, former Prince protégé, and it's, that's on Paisley Park Records, number seven here in the UK in 1987, Taja Savelle and Love is Contagious. I very much like that. That's excellent. Oh, good. Um, and, and, and also a truism. Love is contagious. Yes, very much so, but then many things are, aren't they? Perhaps less enjoyably so. That's very true. Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 342. Uh, I'm Terence Stackham, and back from various adventures in Manchester, including a photo opportunity outside Salford Lads Club, it's Juliet Harris. Indeed, yes, I very much the fifth member of this, well, the sixth member of this mess, if you count Craig Gannon. But anyway, yes, had a had a very enjoyable sojourn in Manchester. Hello, everybody. Uh, Jules, there's a restaurant on the south side of Wardour Street that used to be mm. the used to be the go-to place um, to eat for any bands appearing at clubs nearby in the past. Well, when the Marquee Club, in particular, ah, yes. was housed just up the road in Wardour Street, just about every band playing there would go for their pre-gig meal at Wong K mm. W O N G K E I Wong K at Forty One Wardour Street. Of course, in the music business, uh, everyone referred to it as the wonky uh, restaurant. Um, <laughs> it was notorious in the in the 70s and 80s for the breathtaking rudeness of um, its staff. And I can remember going to the Wong K with various bands in, in the punk and post-punk era. And on arrival, being yelled at within 10 seconds of getting through the door, are you sure you lot have enough money? Show me a cash, show me a cash. Um, oh, okay, go and sit over there. And if um, a diner, at the end of the day, if a diner either didn't tip or didn't tip enough, it wasn't unknown for waiters to shove diners out of the door and start shouting insults at them in the street. Don't come back here with your 50 pence tip. Go, go. Now, I understand Wong K underwent a makeover in 2014, so <laughs> maybe they've also changed their customer relations strategy. But, Jules, you've discovered that terrible customer service continues in restaurants all around the world. Well, it does, yes, unfortunately. Um, you think, more well, maybe it was a relic of time. You know, attitudes were different then. We didn't have, as you point out, the you know customer relations strategies and customer service culture and all that sort of thing. And you think as well, traditionally here in, in England, we are sort of famous for our bad hospitality if you compare us to, say, people in, in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But um, I saw this article on the Guardian website recently. It made me laugh so much. I felt we did need to highlight this to a wider, wider world. Um restaurant in venice you'd think oh you know, ah, italy, Mediterranean, all very friendly yes very you know wonderful dining i've never eaten a bad meal in italy so you think oh you know wonderful wonderful place wonderful dining um this restaurant in venice um unfortunately it was called the osteria de luca um it charged a group of japanese tourists so they were eating four steaks florentine a plate of mixed grilled fish two glasses of wine and um some mineral water. How much do you think in a sane and sensible world four people ought to pay for that, Terence? Well, bearing in mind it's Venice, 100 quid you'd say over here, so maybe 
200 quid yes. for Venice would be... OK, a, that, that seems to be sensible. They charge this group of Japanese tourists, and I, th- I, I regret to inform you that I think the fact that they are Japanese tourists is key to why they were charged here, um, a mere 1,143 <laughs> euros, which makes 994 oh pounds in our money. Um, they have been, they've been <laughs> fined. Um, the fines apparently will total at least 17,400, so rather an expensive mm. sort of charged meal for them. Um, um, apparently, according to um, La Nuova Venezia newspaper, they said that the police and local authorities have been in. They've uncovered breaches of health and safety and food hygiene regulations, as well as um, commercial code infringements, uh, including the accurate description of goods. So they haven't found any grounds to shut the restaurant down, but it does make me laugh that um, it's got a, an average rating of 1.5 stars <laughs> on TripAdvisor, with 83% of reviews uh, classed as, um, and I quote him verbatim, terrible is the official. <laughs> um, um, they uh, they didn't give the group a full receipt. Apparently, basically, okay. I think we can file this under um, the category on the make. I think um, the um, the mayor of Venice, who uh, gives good quote, I think um, Luigi um, Brugnaro um, said that the, the city authorities would quote thoroughly examine this shameful episode and if it were confirmed and then I love this quote do all we can to punish those responsible we are for justice always I mean that is quite funny that is sort of Citizen Smith-esque um, way of describing a, an overcharged meal in a restaurant but um, there's again there was a, a nearby restaurant the Tutoria Casanova where three women in the same tourist group were um, charged a mere £304 for three dishes of seafood pasta um, dear, so, dear. so I mean it would seem here that the, the the problems with the restaurant are multiple. You might just about get away with taking the pee and overcharging if your restaurant is clean and nice anyway. But, mm. of course, if your restaurant is clean or has food hygiene um, difficulties, shall we say, um, it does it does seem less likely you're going to be able to get away with it. Although one would argue, is this any different to places like the Ivy, you know, massively overcharging? And also, I went and ate in a... Uh, I'm just going to throw this in here. I went and ate in a three-Michelin-star restaurant once mm. in... Uh, in San Sebastian, which are many in San Sebastian, called um, Akalari, which was really nice, a lovely food. We were very well looked after. But it was what we called a tasting menu. So it was sort of toy food, really, hmm. frankly. It was about no, it was eight or, uh, seven or eight courses, I think. And it was really nice. But you wouldn't necessarily say that they were eight huge courses. I mean, we didn't leave hungry, but you wouldn't, you know, it's not necessarily a traditional hearty meal. And I think I got rid of about, I don't know, 250 quid. And right. so, so may, I mean, it was really nice. And you hmm. went for the experience, really, and you're paying for the stars, I suppose. But when it comes down to it, you know, when you're thinking about it, are they any are they any better than at least at least you know we know that the shysters are shysters, don't we? Yes, I, I think generally in the UK, restaurants have simply had to catch up with uh, American style service because of the impact of social media and yeah. apps like TripAdvisor, um, mm. where, where repu- reputations can be destroyed in an instant. Sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not always necessarily sure if that's a good thing. It's wandering towards. We often talk about mm. um, uh, Twitter mobs, don't we? But uh, what Grace Dent refers to as Twitch fort mobs, and uh, yeah, I do wonder if sometimes that's necessarily a good thing because. 
of course the good thing is is that is that you know you can word of mouth can work on the internet we all know this and that works quite well but equally uh, truth uh, you know as they say a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its boots on and there are times sometimes where there is such a thing as an unreasonable diner as well as an unreasonable restaurant and i do worry that there are and i've come across the restaurants in hastings where i've eaten before and at the end the woman has said to us oh if you've enjoyed it please can you write a nice review on TripAdvisor because someone's been horrible about us this week and we want someone to sort of put something nice and you do I do worry sometimes if people are extreme on TripAdvisor and that can unjustifiably destroy reputations of restaurants as well. Well, last weekend in in, uh, Finsbury Park in London, a place called the Mm. Blighty Cafe was occupied by protesters uh, because it has a Winston Churchill theme. It's been much in the Mm. news this week. But also... um, the protesting online took place through placing, just mm. as you're saying, very negative reviews on TripAdvisor, and that probably would do more damage than just some, you know, um, half a dozen people coming in and chanting poems for for twenty mm. minutes. Going, um, so I think Wong K in Water Street would have struggled to survive in the modern era. But I do think you're just being a little unfair a few moments ago uh, when you said, "Oh, you know, you highfalutin places like the Ivy," because um, I think okay, that this right, is often. I'll, I'll step to one. Well, I've got the menu in front of me. Um, I don't think this is unreasonable for London prices. The Ivy Shepherd's Pie, £19.50. Haddock Mushy Peas and Chips, 19 quid. So, you know, I I think... uh, (laughs) That's less reasonable, I think. But no, I certainly... For London, central London, that's not too bad. I think the worst element, for me, the worst element of dining out is that excruciating 10 or 20 seconds when the waiter or waitress has put your card in the little payment machine and you and they are waiting for the payment to be authorised and your little receipt, you know, got to be printed out. Mm. And some try and fill the gap with um, a short sound bite. And, mm. you know, it's, well, it's clearing up a bit out there now, isn't it? And, you know, that's OK. But the worst of it is what I can't bear is in that 10 seconds waiting for the payment to be authorised when they ask a question. And that's what I just can't bear it. And it's nearly always, oh, up to anything this afternoon? And you know, in a fraction of a second, I wonder if I should be honest. First of all, I think I should, should I be honest and say, well, I'm probably going to fall asleep on the sofa watching the racing from Lingfield, you know. <laughs> um, but I usually say, oh, <laughs> not very much. Um but I always feel terribly tempted to say, when they say, you know, oh, <laughs> are you up to anything this afternoon? I always feel like saying, oh, I'm back in court for sentencing uh, this <laughs> afternoon. I'm expecting a long stretch inside, you know. Um, so, but, so that's my point. Waiters, don't ask me anything. I'd rather have that awkward silence. You see, whereas, whereas again, I, I, I'm far more, as, as Peter Manson would have put it, intensely relaxed about small talk than you are. Oh, I have yes, had I many cheery... I have had many cheery conversations with taxi drivers about football. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't mind waiter and waiter's small talk. I think that's okay. Coming up next, I'm going to ask Juliet if she'd mm-hmm. consider a change of career. <laughs> uh, that's uh, right after Portishead.
across this recently. I'd never really heard it before, but I um, I, I often use um, Apple Music. Other music services are available, and they uh, they recommend things that they that they think you'd like or you mm. should listen to. And this um, this popped up in my my recommends the other day. The whole album. Um, the album is a, a, a Serge tribute. Uh, Serge um, Gainsborough Serge tribute. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And. Um, uh, there are some great versions on the album, but I do particularly like this. I think it's great. It's Portishead doing Requiem for Anna. Well, I, when, we've, when we've had Portishead tracks before, I always tend to say the same thing. I always say, what a great voice Beth mm. Gibbons has. And Absolutely. Uh, essentially, there we had another great example of my, yes, my point. Yes, true. I think the drumming on that is excellent mm. as well, though, actually. It's very languid, and when you listen to the whole album, of all of the people that doing the covers... It's them that seem to have managed to grab the essence. I mean, it is a replication, but they have mm. added, uh, you know, sort of grab the essence of the kind of languid sort of drumming and and, and the languid setup of Serge Gainsborough's um, tunes. Actually, I think that they they re- did a really good job of capturing that sound. Now, Juliet Lucy uh, Harris. Of course, mm, it's that not is me. It's not my place to make you question your choice of career. It's certainly not for me to put you on the spot and make you wonder if all the years of study, training and hard work have been worth it. Mm. However, many of us found this week that there is a career for women that has caused much controversy in the news and it leads me to the inevitable question and I know you won't be offended by me asking this. (laughs) (laughs) Jules, have have you ever considered... Being a Formula One grid girl or a walk-on girl in the darts? Well, you know, this is a... a I, I'm always aware that you are, you <laughs> have my best interests at heart at all times and you are often proved to be a sage friend and advisor. Mm. Um, I have to be honest and say that I cannot say that oh. such a career... Well, A, it's not mm. really appealed to me. Um, and also, mm. I don't think... How can I put this nicely? I don't think I'm cut out for it. I'm not sure mm, I've got God. exactly what they're looking for when it comes to... comes to, Although I do like the idea of bespectacles um, <laughs> over-enthusiastic jazz fans being... <laughs> kind of walk on girls at the darts i think that would be good no i've never mm. i've never had seen the need for it there have been lots of sports do them don't they boxing as well has mm. walk on girls and um yeah I, I i find that all to be a bit naff really i must admit i did some research this week and it's mm. both sad and amusing to note how quickly some of our popular tabloid newspapers change their stance on issues yes. um, <laughs> rather in the manner of like cornered chameleons um it's only just over a month um as i say did a bit of research look back a bit the daily express a month ago daily express ran a piece meet the stunning walk-on girls the world dart championships kicks off this evening and the stunning walk-on girls provide some much needed glamour at alexandra palace and um Dart's own television channel uh, at the same time just before the World Darts uh, started. Um, This is what they said. uh, Christmas can only mean three things. Darts, beer and babes. Oh, for goodness sake. Which is just about the most depressing sentence I've ever quoted in the entire history of this podcast. Yes, I was going to say, and there have been some depressing sentences, but yes, I think that's definitely up there. I I don't know how anyone can can, defend gross depictions of women, but it's beyond my understanding. And and I think any men who do so are a reminder of the point that you made in the last podcast, in that 
these men who want the walk-on girls to continue in their awful role all swiftly change their tune if you ask if they want their wise partners or daughters being ogled and catcalled and uh, and whistled at yeah absolutely no i am i I agree although again and this is very much um relevant to a lot of um conversation particularly amongst feminists at the moment regarding um prostitution and sex work and you know whether or not if if people if women do want to have careers in that sort of way whether or not you know it it is legitimate for somebody to be able to have a career in that or whether the power imbalance means that that, you know you never do truly have power in those careers even if you think that you do if you see what i mean and and there were there have been some people on twitter walk-on girls saying oh save the walk-on girls i really like doing this i know what i'm doing and i it's not my place to patronise people like that. People should do what they want to. Mm. But equally, I do worry that there is a, a kind of an undercurrent of, of exploitation in those kind of sort of worlds, which even if people aren't aware of initially, things lead on to other things, I think. And I do I do worry that if you start off in that world, you might soon find yourself embroiled in things which perhaps uh, might not be what you'd originally intended, if you see what I mean. I, I, I do find it regressive and offensive that, you know, it's always women that are kind of presented as a as a kind of a you know as, as as window dressing i remember having a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine once who was working for the sun at the time and i did get the impression that she's sort of politically leftish i think she's a lib dem now and she was she's very i got the impression that she was very much bending over and kind of contorting herself to sort of justify page three and i was asking questions and saying well you know why why is it always women what you know does mm. it do, do you not really you know can you not think about power because feminism people, people talk about feminism it's not about sex it's about power and i said you know do you, it's not an equal distribution of power is it if there's only other women and she said oh well we did try to deal with men but we couldn't get enough men to appear and i said mm. what does that tell you yes, you know right, that yeah. that's that you know what does what does that say that you know you can't and and it do, to me it doesn't say oh well you know it's the fault of women because they put themselves up to do it it's the fault of a completely imbalanced system and I do I know we, we returned to this theme a lot recently but I do really hope that the Me Too conversation and all the conversations that are now happening I really do hope that this is a watershed and a culture change and you know I, people go oh it's a PC brigade you know that sort of mm. thing actually I do feel that whilst there are some women that, that you know do want to be walk-on girls there are an awful lot more women that do are, are just sick of this crap to be honest that that's that's kind of where I am now uh, people say I'm a feminist yes I'm a feminist why, why are you a feminist you know? because I'm just sick of men's crap really and this whole crap society that kind of is is you know where, where women are always or women always tend to be the full guys and even and, and you know even when then you know you get some people that do want to be walking girls it then becomes women turning on each other so so I don't want to seem like I am turning on 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 the women that still want to do this, but equally I I just I find it so frustrating. It's it's just so irritating. I think that that we're still having to deal with this rubbish. Frankly, I think the the point of some women saying they want to be walk on girls has very little validity. I'll just quickly say why because I think um, life moves on and we mm. no longer send little boys and girls up chimneys which was accepted practice in you know the the, the sort of early victorian era and probably if we'd have talked to the little boys or girls they said oh no mister i like doing this you know absolutely yeah and going back even further we no longer employ um 
six-year-olds as spit boys and girls, which they did in Tudor times. They used to stand in the fireplace turning a spit uh, of, of, you know, the food that was going around it with inevitable sort of short life-term consequences Mm. for doing so. I think some of the... So, therefore, you know, I think in in another 200 years, uh, people say, you know, people actually employed these women to walk on in bikinis. I think some of the tachyo tabloids are in a world of confusion on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Their instinct, and with much of their own history behind them, is to lead with, you know, save our glamour girls, we tell killjoys to back our darts babes and that sort of thing. But they're also, I think, very swiftly now becoming aware that maybe, just maybe... The tide is turning, and their core readership, which is, of course, dropping quarter on quarter in most yes, uh, newspapers, course, yeah. just might not be supporting their sexist um, president club style of publishing anymore. And maybe people, essentially men, of course, are now beginning to see the light and questioning whether, in fact, the event, the, the sport, whatever, is actually de- devalued rather than enhanced by the appearances of bosomy women in, in bikinis. Yeah, it's, it's a distraction. It's tacky. It's, it, it makes it become irrelevant rather than relevant, I think. And there's one thing that I actually want to pick mm. up on that, that I should have made this point mm. last week. But uh, my point that I've made about, you know, would, would they want their daughters doing it? Mm. Actually, I, I almost need to kind of go back on myself here because, of course, much of this kind of Weinstein, post-Weinstein stuff, mm. um, lots of men that were coming out to condemn it came out and did the whole, you know, as the father of girls Mm. i condemn this i mean yeah i i I, that's a you know i have used that argument would you want your daughter doing but equally why the hell do you have to have daughters in order not to be a terrible person can you just not be a terrible person anyway please guys you know is there any you know why does it take having to be married or have a sister or have a a female child to make you realize that this kind of behavior is creepy and wrong frankly i notice um It's usually modern thinkers like 87-year-old Bernie Ecclestone uh, that defend the role (laughs) of remote racing Greek girls. And I, I just wanted to throw in a quick quote. He said in The Sun this week... The country at the moment is getting a bit prudish. I can't see how a good-looking girl standing with a driver and a number in front of a car can be offensive to anybody, Um, to which I just want to finish my thoughts by saying, you know, Bernie, if you can't see it, I, I can't help you. No, absolutely. And I think I think that's it, really. I think, you know, people are either and and I come across people in different sort of political arenas at the moment who can't see, for example, that Jeremy Corbyn isn't hugely pro-Remain, to put it mildly. And they keep saying, you know, they'll say, well, he feels like I feel about the EU. And and there are some people come across you think either you are just really thick or you just can't see what's in front of you because you don't want to see what's in front of you. And either way, I like you say, I can't help you. You know, I don't. If you don't get it, then uh, I think this conversation's got to stop because I cannot see a way of persuading you if you cannot see reason or you will not see reason. Awkward, irritating and squirm-inducing are just a handful of the words... Hey, that's me. Hey, hey. Handful of the words I used to describe the television show uh, that we're looking at right after Low. If I could just make it stop I could tell the whole world
And from the 2013 album, The Invisible Way, that's low. And just make it stop. Well, which is much how I feel about the uh, about the, the topic of conversation that we've just talked about. Really. <laughs> no. I'm always here for low. Mm. Oh, yeah, I, I, I adore, adore low. Uh, Alan Sparhawk and uh, Mimi Parker, low. Um, there's a television show that turns up every weekday on BBC One. And I don't think I've ever come across in all my life a programme that actually makes me visibly squirm with embarrassment and mm. discomfort from start to finish, uh, from soup to nuts, as Bertie Wooster would say. Mm. Antiques Road Trip hijacks our screens <laughs> between 4.30pm and 5.15 each weekday, and it's 45 minutes of the most awkward ghastliness that you will witness two antiques so-called experts compete against each other they're given a budget of 200 quid each and through five days um, which for some viewers feels like five years they buy and sell antiques and now whichever expert makes the greater profit over the first uh, over the five legs is is the winner so what's the problem you might ask it's everything the awful 
terrible, wince-inducing narration. Uh, nearly all the participants are trying just that little too artlessly, just that little too hard to be personalities, uh, roles for, for which they're not suited. Um, at least two of them, uh, at least two of the antiques experts deserve a metaphorical punch on the nose. And and yet, but this is the thing, and yet, watch it on a Monday, wriggle with horror at the contrived hackneyed nature of the presentation um, of a United Kingdom that no longer exists, and on Tuesday, with guilt and even more horror, you find yourself thinking, surely that ass isn't going to buy any more broken Claris Cliff <laughs> sources, and you find yourself clicking the remote over to BBC One and Antiques Road Trip and Jules. Just what is the hypnotic appeal of this daft show in which extremely irritating people compete to buy silver-plated cigarette cases from the 1930s. Absolutely. Well, it is one of those things. I I am a fan, not necessarily of the ordinary antiques road trip, mm. but the diluted version. Usually, and again, you know, your your what is the appeal of this point? Usually, anything with celebrity in front of it, I just mm. think, oh, you oh know, no, go away, yeah. click. Yeah, celebrity antique road trip. I adore because you often get two celebrities, and you know, there are varying expressions of the word celebrity, but you get two people that quite often get on and or want to compete with each other. Um, so you you get them involved as well. And personally, I rather like it. You know, yes, the, the anti-experts are particularly tedious and trying sometimes, but the celebrities seem to dilute that. The presence of other people seem to kind of take the edge off that a bit. Um, they drive around in classic cars, which is very much something I'm interested. There is often a Motown or 60s mod soundtrack, which I'm also very <laughs> interested in. And like you say, anything that has a kind of an end goal you think, oh, actually, it's that you know. I want to know what happens, and the celebrity ones are usually tied up in one episode, if you see what I mean. So they'll be mm. an hour long, and they will have you know oh, that they okay. will they will go to different. So actually, in a way, you don't lose a whole week to it. You just lose a kind of a single episode. There was a particularly good one the other day. Grace Dent and Amol Ranjan, the uh, mm. the um, BBC media editor, and Grace Dent uh, ended up competing against each other, and it was <laughs> it was brilliant because they were genuinely competing and. Grace Dent was extremely cross when they were sat in an auction room somewhere and uh, the other team's article just went up and up and up <laughs> and up and it was worth it just a Grace Dent with her arms folded completely livid as uh, as they were so I, so I enjoy the competitive elements I enjoy the kind of the dressing of it um there is just something about it I, but then we, Britain is the home of the boot sale, isn't it? We spend our Sunday mornings trolling around the beautiful countryside, buying other people's rubbish from trestle tables. It is ingrained in our culture, I think. And so so I quite enjoy the, the, the very singular British cultural delight of, you know, and also it's, it's fun. Whilst I am a fan of experts, some people famously have not been over the last <laughs> few months, I am, I am a fan of experts. But because the experts are, as you say, occasionally a bit pompous and up themselves mm. there is a very great pleasure in watching them persuade somebody from eastenders to spend 150 pounds on a wooden barrel that has quite clearly been spray on transfer within the last five <laughs> five minutes and and then of course it goes to the the auction room and there's usually some sort of reckoning isn't there where you know it's, it's on for 150 and someone from barnstable on the internet pays 45 pounds and then it all goes a bit wrong there is just something about it it's this heady mix of of, of 
of fun and schachtenfreude that makes it appealing, I think. It's the auction room bit. I, I get so annoyed when they, they, they take their tatty purchases to the auction at the end of each daily show. And they seem to select some rural auction place in the middle of nowhere with about three people present sitting on very dusty-looking sofas. Yes, absolutely. And it's obvious these people present clearly aren't going to bid more than £2.50 for anything. And then... Oh, the, 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 this is the bit at the auction that really annoys me. There's the false excitement. There's one irritating bloke in particular. He's bought some... I don't know, god-awful vase for five quid. And at the auction, as it goes up, you know, the bids go six pounds, seven pounds. And he starts getting hysterical, sold for eight pounds. And the bloke goes berserk. You know, he almost performs cartwheels because he's made a profit of three quid. But (laughs) I suppose... The appeal of it, uh, the, uh, the antiques road trip, it hits a nerve in us, like, uh, like you say, car boot sales, but also I was thinking like the detectorists, where we all have a little dream inside of being treasure hunters and finding True, that one yes. item, you know, we pay 10 quid uh, for it and it turns out to be worth £50,000. Absolutely, that's what made the the, um, the original ending of Only Fools and Horses before mm. they inadvisedly brought it back. Mm. The uh, time on our hands, the idea that Del Boy and Rodney um, have spent years and years and years trying to be millionaires and I'll never, uh, you know, I still think of the scene sometimes where Raquel's father is is in a lock-up with, that they've got with Del Boy and Del Boy, that this chap looks at this watch and kind of with interest, and Del Boy just goes, "Oh, we just got it from a house clearance," and literally picks up this fob watch and absentmindedly throws it into a frying pan that's on a hob. You know, not not it's not on, but just kind yeah. of tosses it to one side. And the chap then picks it up, and it turns out to be an antique that is literally worth about six or seven million. And that's kind of the end. That's how they've accidentally made their millions because someone else has stumbled across something that they've had no idea they've got. And that, so there is something very appealing about not exactly just bargain hunting but the idea that you might find anyone could find something anywhere mm. that might all of a sudden make them a lot of money on a very much smaller scale I was talking to my friend Tim Burtz the other day we, there's a, a really good vinyl collecting community on Twitter mm. and you know there are lots of fun people that I've met through there that always post up their charity shop and boot sale purchases from every weekend and my friend Tim said to me once I'm so cross because that never happens to me I never find some that Pink Floyd rarity at a boot sale I only ever seem to find you know Acker Bilk and stuff like that and I, I said to him yes I share your pain never happens to me and then I went to Oxford and looked in an Oxfam in Oxford and, and usually charity shop record shopping is harder to get a bargain than it used to be because they've all cottoned on to what stuff's worth now or at least that they know the sources you can find out from an Oxfam particularly but I found myself in an Oxfam shuffling through some records um I bought a KD Lang album on Angenay just because I, I fancied it and I thought it looked quite good. And it was two ninety nine. And when I posted a picture of it up on up on Twitter, um, just sort of as a joke, someone said, you do realise that record's worth about 25 quid? And I had my very own small victory in the world of world of record shopping. So, yes, there, maybe it is that. Maybe it's the kind of the... I mean, we hear about the American dream and that Theresa May has been... I said she's made various ill-fated attempts at everything, it would seem, but particularly <laughs> at, um, at the... British dream and the idea of the British dream and maybe the British dream is not the grand idea of wanting to aspire to be better, it's just hoping to make 30 quid off a record that you paid 3 quid for Oh, and if you want to have your soul eaten alive 
but then feeling a strange force to bring you back the next day, um, then uh, try Antiques Road Trip. It's weekdays in the afternoons on BBC One. Assuming you're not filming the next series of Celebrity (laughs) Antiques Road Trip. Or or in a charity shop trying to find, you know, a first press of Aftermath by the Rolling Stones at 25p. (laughs) Where might we find you this coming week? Well, this coming week, mm. I haven't read quite weekend. It's no Saturday Social this week. That is next week. Mm. Um, but this this week, you'll find me doing Indie Wonderland. Ooh. I was back um, back this week. I was off this week, obviously, in Manchester. But uh, I will be back next Wednesday from 8 until 10 p.m. on barricaderadio.com. Indie, alt rock and miscellaneous. And we'll be revealing our track of the month of February. Excellent. Um, thanks to you for listening. And uh, thanks to our Bonnie executive producer, Rona. Yes, I, I remain aggressively pro-Rona at all times. Now, I must confess, this band we're playing out with had rather passed me by, but when I played this track during the week when I, I, I learned that you'd chosen it, I was really drawn to it. It's really hypnotic and mm. bewitching, Jules, rather like yourself. What that that's oh, very very kind and sincere of you. Thank you for saying that. Um, it's uh, yeah, I I their band sort of passed me by at the mm. time, and again it was on one of these iTunes these Apple Music playlists. Ah. Um, that it said, oh, if you like this, you might like this one of those kind of things, mm. and it is great. I really really like it. It's by um, so this band were on Too Pure in the nineties, which which makes me quite surprised that I hadn't heard of them before. But therefore, it doesn't surprise me at all that I really like it because anything on Too Pure in the nineties, I just absolutely love. Of. and like you say it doesn't do a lot this tune but it does build into something quite bewitching I think I really like it and I have been enjoying the album as well um, the band is called Long Fin Killy or as um, Terence insisted on, on on referring to them in our warm up the Long Fin Killies so uh, popular beat pop <laughs> by the Long Fin Killies and uh, this is called Coward
You have been listening to a DAC Media Production.